It was an ordinary Sunday morning in early 18th century Germany. And the pastor on this Sunday morning was sharing of the need for the gospel, the gospel to be taken to an island in the West Indies. That morning, he spoke specifically about an atheist slave owner who had about 3,000 slaves who would consequently have no opportunity to hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there were two men there that morning who were deeply disturbed by what they heard. So much so that they said, we are going to go to take these slaves the gospel. But the question is, how? How would they take the gospel and get it to these slaves? You see, they had resolved to sell themselves into slavery so that these 3,000 people might hear of Jesus Christ. So against the will of many of their friends and family, they boarded a ship, and as that ship crept away from the shore, they put their arms around one another, and one of them shouted out these powerful words, may the lamb who was slain, received the reward of his suffering. See, these two men understood what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. And so they were willing to risk their lives, to sell their, themselves into slavery that people might know of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ might receive the reward of his suffering. Now the question is, what is this reward that he speaks of? And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago in Revelation 5, verses 11 and 12 say this, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So what is the reward of Christ? It is his praise. Jesus Christ deserves the praise that he created us for in the first place. And this is exactly what John Piper writes of in the opening of his excellent book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's such a powerful quote. Listen to it. He says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. 
Worship is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. So this is what we are after here, okay? This is what we're about at Redemption. This is why we started a church in Medford, okay? We are not after some bottom line here, okay? That's not the goal. The goal is not for this place even to be, I mean, we're just not here just so that hundreds of people will come on Sundays. We're not here to receive recognition and accolades from people in our city when we do good works in our city. The primary motivator for our mission is that people would see the worth of God in Christ and that would move them to worship him. And so we are wrapping up our worship series this, this week. We, we looked at worth-driven worship. And then last week, gospel-driven worship. And today, we want to look at worship-driven mission. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Acts, chapter 17 this morning. So if you have your Bible, please open up to Acts 17. We'll be starting in verse 16. If you want to use one of these Bibles that we've provided for you in the chairs, it will be on page 926. And what we're going to see this morning is that the desire for God to be worshipped should fuel our mission to make God known. This is what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts records the advance of the church from a smaller group in Jerusalem all the way to spreading to the ends of the earth at that point in the known world. The two key figures in the book are Peter, whose ministry dominates chapters one through eight, and then Paul, whose ministry is highlighted in the pages of chapters nine through 28. Luke records the three missionary journeys that Paul went on, and we are now right in the middle of his second missionary journey where he's made his way from Thessalonica and Berea, where he was persecuted, had to flee onto Athens. That's where we pick up this morning in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. So read just this one verse with me and it will get us going here this morning. It says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So we have Paul here, after he has fled from Thessalonica and Berea, he's waiting on his partners in ministry, Silas and Timothy, to make it to him that they might minister together there in that great city. Now, most of you know that Athens was one of the, the largest and most influential cities of Paul's day. It was a city that surpassed all most other cities in terms of business and government and, and, um, and what else am I trying to say here? Business and, and, and government and pol politics is government. There we go. Hey, somebody help me out here. Athens was an awesome city, all right? And, uh, and beyond that, um, it was also a city that, that surpassed all other cities in terms of its idolatry. 
This is what verse 16 says. It says that the, the, the city was full of idols. And so when Paul sees all these idols, I mean, he is, is observing this, and, and it says that his spirit was provoked within him. This is a key word here. When, when it says that he was provoked, it means that he was deeply distressed. Paul experienced within himself this, this righteous anger, this godly jealousy, because he knew that God deserved the worship that the people were giving to these hundreds and thousands of idols that filled the city. One ancient writer said that it is easier to find a God, little g, lowercase g, in Athens than a person. <laughs> and the city was filled with people, of course. So Paul is seeing this all around. He says he was provoked to this godly jealousy. I mean, there is, there is a righteous kind of jealousy and there is a sinful kind of jealousy, right? And what determines whether jealousy is legit or not? Well, it depends on the legitimacy of whether or not the rival belongs there or not, okay? So jealousy is this intolerance of rivals and competitors. And, and, and so we, we may not be able to be jealous over Chris's great looks and intellect and, and skills and his job, right? I mean, because why? Because, well, we don't have a monopoly on intellectual, you know, prowess and, and beauty and, and skills, right? So that wouldn't be necessarily right. But when it comes to God, God has a monopoly on worship because there is no one or nothing higher than God. God is supreme. He alone deserves our worship. And so Paul understood this. He knew that the first, of the, the, two, uh, the first two of the Ten Commandments say this in Exodus 20. It says that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So Paul here is reflecting the jealousy of God and his own jealousy to see God worshiped in that great city. That's what moved him. And we should ask ourselves this morning, look, does it bother us at all when we see so many people, I mean, the idols of greater Boston are not so visible on the surface, right? I mean, we don't have all of these structures raised up around our city to these idols around us, but we have idols of our heart. We chase after things that we set up as supreme over the rightful place of God, whether that's sex or power or money or accomplishment, whatever it may be, we raise these things up, elevate them over the rightful place of God. And the question is, are we, does, that, does that bother us? Is, are we provoked at all when our friends, families, neighbors, coworkers are not worshiping the God who made them and is worthy of their worship? 
And so I'm asking myself the question, like, Tanner, I mean, why aren't you more provoked? Why doesn't, it, why doesn't it deeply disturb you? Why am I not more jealous for God's glory that he might be worshiped among all people? Well, here are probably a few reasons maybe you can identify with them yourself. Number one, perhaps we're not more jealous for God's glory because we fail to see how glorious God is. I mean, God is infinitely glorious. God cannot be more glorious than he already is. When Jesus was coming down the, the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, he, he was coming in on the back of a donkey, not too glorious, by the way, but he was the king. And so the people started praising him. They were singing Hosanna, right? Which is the word that we just sang about. And the people began to grumble in the crowd. They said, man, Jesus, tell your disciples to, to be quiet and stop praising you. And what did Jesus say? He said, if they're quiet, the very stones will cry out in praise of me. You see, all of creation never fails to, to give God glory and to testify to how great he is. But if creation wouldn't get the job done, man, the angels are surrounding the throne of God in heaven and they're constantly giving God praise incessantly. But even if creation and the angels would not worship God, God is so glorious that he just contains glory within himself. It just emanates from who he is. God is continually receiving worship. And so when we catch a picture of how glorious he is and how worthy he is of our attention and our affections and our allegiance, then perhaps we will be more provoked when Others are not worshiping as well. But then number two, another reason is that we often are participating in the idolatry ourselves, right? We're constantly fighting this. We're constantly uh, seeing things creep up in our life, whatever it may be for you, that just kind of push God to the periphery of your life. And so we don't, see the jealousy in our hearts because, man, we're participating in, participating in ourselves. And then a third reason, I think, is that we have become desensitized to the world's infatuation with the world. You get that? I mean, in, in, in other words, we are kind of like the proverbial frog in the kettle of American culture and consumerism and sometimes watered down Christianity. You know? Come to church occasionally, get your fix, pray every now and then, and everything is all good between me and God kind of deal. Which, by the way, is, there's no such thing as that in the Bible as that being defined as Christianity, Okay? You know, I was, I was listening to a, a sermon a couple of weeks ago by Francis Chan. He is, uh, he is an author, a pastor out in California. He's just moved from Simi Valley to San Francisco. And uh, sometimes, by the way, this is kind of funny. I'm starting to call our little daughter, 15-month-old Kessid, I'm starting to call her Francis Chan, okay? Because she is crazy on the one hand. I mean, you just got to see her, especially at night. I mean, she's just bonkers. And then she's also full of love, Okay. So some of you have read any of Francis Chan's book. His bestseller is called Crazy Love. Okay, so we're going to call Kessid 
Francis Chan just occasionally uh, to have some fun with it. But, but anyway, the, uh, you can call her that if you want. Just don't, Marcia probably won't get that, but that's okay. Um, but, but, the, but the real Francis Chan uh, he, was, he was preaching this sermon and he was talking about how that he is just, you know, constantly pursuing God for this kind of, this kind of uh, huge experience, just to really want to see God move and work in his life and in the people where, you know, he, he serves. And he's always begging God, just saying, God, I want to see kind of an Acts 4 kind of moment. You know, where the disciples are gathered praying after, again, they had been persecuted. And it said that the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word with boldness. And so, so Chan is saying, man, I want that. That is what I want to experience. Not just kind of sometimes, but, but, but so much more consistently. I want God to move in my life and use me in that way. And then Chan makes the great point that so many other scholars and missiologists have made throughout the years. He said, look, when does that happen? When does God show up like that? God shows up like that. Not when the church is tucked away in their little Christian subculture, but when they are with God on his mission for him. And so perhaps if we would kind of get out of our comfort zone a little bit and get on mission with God, that we'll see God show up. We'll be more sensitive to what's going on around us and we'll be more zealous and jealous to see God receive the worship that he so richly deserves. So number one, worship-driven mission begins with a jealousy for God's glory. That's where it has to start. But once we get that, once we get a real jealousy in our hearts to see God worshiped and loved and adored and obeyed, then it will move us, number two, to a clear witness to Christ. Worship-driven mission ends with a clear witness to Christ. And that is what we are going to see as we move through verses 17 through 31. So I'm gonna read this whole passage for us and then we're gonna break it down, okay? Here we go. Starts in verse 17. After Paul's spirit was provoked within him, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and the hope that they might fill their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so what I want to do as we look at how Paul approaches his witness to to Christ, to all of these people in Athens, I want to just kind of break this down and give us seven principles that we can take and apply to the mission that God has for us in Medford and greater Boston, okay? So you might wanna write these down. Number one, declare Christ in the power of the Spirit. Declare Christ in the power of the Spirit. You say, Tanner, I don't see the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 17. Where do you get that? Well, we get that from Acts 1.8. It is the pivotal key verse for the book of Acts where Jesus says to his disciples right before he ascends to the Father in heaven, he said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. See, I love what, what Bill Hybel says about personal evangelism. He says that the absolute highest value in personal evangelism is staying attuned to and cooperative with the Holy Spirit. So let me just ask you this. Do you ever feel overwhelmed when you think about the task that is before you as a Christian? I mean, we, we get this, right? I mean, this is, this is what Jesus told us to do. It's our job description. We are to, because we know of the love of Christ and, and the life that he brings and, and changes within us, I mean, we want to share this message. We know that that's what it's about, but do you ever feel overwhelmed when you consider the hundreds and thousands of people that are around you? I mean, when you, I walk through the city, I mean, I'm thinking, God, how are we ever gonna make a dent in this thing? When you go into your workplace, do you, ever, do you ever feel that way? When you're walking across your campus, do you ever feel this way? I think we all do, right? We need to remember that God has given us his spirit. It, the spirit empowers our witness. I mean, do, do you ever find it difficult to know the words to say? You're searching like I was a little bit ago for the right word, and it's just like, you know, this, the spirit, Right? You don't, know, you don't know how to proceed. You don't know how to move forward. The Spirit empowers our witness. 
Number two, we are to declare Christ strategically and consistently. Look back in verse 17. It says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace. So, so Paul is, you know, he's a pretty smart fellow, okay? Like he, he went, this is so novel, by the way, he went to where the people were gathered. How about that? How, how's, how's that for strategic, right? Go where the people are and present the gospel as God gives opportunity. And I love Paul. I mean, he knew man, that he could have some conversation in a religious context in the synagogue, but he also knew, man, that he could, he could bridge. Paul was so good at this. We're going to see in a minute. I mean, Paul could go into the marketplace and get into a, a, a conversation about the gospel in the marketplace. So he was, he was strategic, but he was also consistent. Look at, again, it says in verse 17, it says in the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be there. Every day. Every day Paul was doing this. I mean, there was research that was just released three weeks ago from Ed Stetzer and his group. He heads up Lifeway Research. And they, they did some, some research on, you know, just, just Christianity in America. And they found that 80% of people who attend church one or more Sundays in a given month, which is, by the way, not cookies on the top shelf, but, you know, it's a start. Uh, he said that, that out of those 80%, they understand that it is their responsibility to share their faith with others. But he said only 61% had shared the gospel in the past six months. The past six months only. I mean, and to be honest, I'm surprised that the number is that high. And is it an indictment on our walk with Christ and our zeal and passion to see other people experience the life that we know in Christ? And so can I just ask you, I mean, we're not going to like take a survey. We're not going to ask everyone on your way out, hey, when's the last time you shared, you know, how people can know God through Christ. But I mean, when is, when is the last time that you share the gospel with someone? Has it been in the past six months? God is, is calling us to be about sharing our faith regularly. I mean, what if we had the attitude? This would be so good. I want this for myself. What if we had the attitude? Man, my day is not complete. My week is not complete. My month is not complete unless I have attempted to share Christ with someone. I mean, could, could we do that? I mean, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe we're not like Paul. Maybe we're not every day, but how about every month? Could we get that done? How about, how about every, when we get that, like how about every week? And then maybe where we're just, it's just who we are. It just becomes part of who we are, where it's every day, that consistent. And if you're like me, I mean, you're so busy and you get so distracted with everything going on in life that you just need to take some steps of intentionality. Here's one little tip. This is something that I've tried to make a new habit uh, in my weekly routine. At the beginning of every week, I take five minutes and I just think about who it is in my life, my friends, the people that I'm meeting out in the community, which the list is very, very long. And I, there's no way that I could, could talk to every person or get in touch with every person in any, any given week. But what I can do is write down three to five names of people 
whether it's the worker at Starbucks or whether it's, you know, my, 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 my friends at Medford High or whatever, whatever it may be, there are those people that I can at least get in touch with. I can at least follow up with. I can shoot them a text message. I can give them a call. I can hug up with them at some point in the week. And even if I, if, even if I don't share the gospel with them in, in that week, at least I'm, I'm keeping the ball rolling, right? Keeping those relationships strong. Because, man, I want all my friends to know the life that Jesus died to give us. And so let's be strategic and consistent in our witness for Christ. Number three, declare Christ with relevance. Again, this is what Paul was so good at. The missiologists call this contextualization. It basically means that we speak the message of the gospel in a way that is understandable and discernible to the people around us. So in other words, if if Paul was here today, he would not go down to the bus stop in Medford Square and have the same conversation that he would on the campus of Tufts later in the week, more than likely, okay? Two different contexts, two different uh, probably people with different backgrounds, and, and so he would tailor how he packaged the message based on who it was that he was interacting with. And this is exactly what he does in Athens. He sees that that the, the, the city is full of idols. And so he finds this connection point. He bridges the gap, right? between uh, where they were and where he wanted them to be. So he starts with what was in their culture already. He sees that they have this, this uh, idol to an unknown God. He says, hey, let me, let me tell you about this, this God that you are trying to worship. And he starts with creation. He speaks their language. He even quotes two of their own writers and poets, Epimenides of Crete and Eratus, a poet of, of, of their day. I mean, can you take like a Katy Perry song and get to the gospel? Okay, maybe you don't want to do that. But, um, you know, can, can you take like the, the speech or, or just whatever it is that's going on in life? I mean, can you bridge those gaps and, and find themes and, 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 and connection points to, to get into spiritual conversations, to move from the natural to the spiritual, whether it's issues of, of justice or, or, or money or whatever, whatever the case may be. And we can get to the gospel just in everyday life. And Paul was so good at that. And I love that, that Paul here, is, as he's speaking Christ with relevance, he, he speaks in a sensitive way, right? He doesn't just come out and bash. Like when we share Christ, we are not attacking people, which is why some people, you know, are so hesitant when you bring up the name Jesus. They think you're just like attacking them. You're gonna beat them over the head with a Bible. Okay, that's not, that's not the point, all right? But we share what Ephesians 4, 15 says, right? We speak the truth in love. That's how we are to go about our business. So we declare Christ with relevance. And then we, number four, declare Christ and cover the essentials. All right, we see this as he gets into the heart of his address. Here, here are four essentials, all right? Very, very simple. We need to have a proper view of God. So Paul says, God is creator. God is the sustainer of our lives. He is the one who gives us life and breath and all things. And and God is the one who is the father over all people. He created us in his image. And we are to reflect him and to worship him. And and because of that, God is even going to be the one who judges us one day. We have to give an account of our lives, not to our our friends or our family. We we give an account of our lives to God. 
So we have a proper view of God. We have a proper view of man. That we are all idolaters. That we have not worshiped God as we should. That we all have sin in our life that separates us from a holy and righteous God. And that we are in need of his grace to have the life that he intended for us in the beginning. That's a proper view of man, a proper view of Christ, that Christ is the one who lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died a death in our place and was raised again so that all who look to him and believe in him and repent of the way that they had been living means a change of life and heart, that they, they turn from that and they turn to trust Christ in his work, we can experience salvation. Which then leads us to that fourth part of the essentials, a proper view of our response. It's not enough to say, hey, Jesus was a good man. Yeah, he did a lot of great things. He had some really good teaching, but Jesus Christ is Lord and I owe my life to him. Those are the essentials. And that is what Paul covers here in Acts chapter 17 in Athens. Now, number five, declare Christ with urgency. I mean, do you ever just kind of like, it's on your radar, but we will get to that at some point one day when my week is a little less busy. I will make more time to be active in sharing my faith with others. And when we, when we see what Paul says here about the, the coming judgment of God in, in Acts 17, 31, that, that God has actually fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, I mean, that should move us to action, Right? We should, we should have this sense of urgency in our hearts. Like, man, I cannot let the clock keep on ticking without getting the gospel message to these people in my life that need to hear of Christ. So this is the final, the, 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 the final step after we have this urgency then is to declare Christ by making an appeal. Okay. The sixth, the sixth one is to declare Christ and make an appeal. So we, we appeal to them to say, look, you need to turn from the way that you're living. You need to turn to trust Christ, to put your faith in him, to receive the, the gift of salvation that he offers to all people. And then finally, as we do that, here's the really cool part. We can walk away, and we're still praying for these people, right? But we walk away and we leave the results to God. And so, so sometimes when I'm sharing with people, I'll just kind of try to disarm them a little bit because it's just awkward. You just have to kind of get over the awkwardness at time, whether it's someone you've known for 20 years or someone you met two minutes ago. It's, it's, it's always awkward, right? You just kind of have to own that. And the, the potential for rejection is always there. So just prepare yourself for that and then actual rejection won't be that bad. Got it? And so... Sometimes when I'm chatting with people, I'll just say, look, I can't make you believe this. I understand that, okay? If I could, I just would snap my finger. Everything would be cool. But I can't make you believe anything. But I'm gonna share what I believe is true about God, the world that he's made, and how we can have a relationship with him. And listen, when you do that, that's all God expects from, from us. He just wants our faithfulness. The results are in his hands. We cannot save anyone. It is God's job to save people that they might become worshipers of him. And so we, we see this in, at the end of Acts 17. Look in verse 32. 
It says, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, man, some people just laughed and mocked Paul, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and verse 34 says, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there are three responses, right? There is mocking and rejection. There are those that we think might reject and mock us, but they actually want to hear more. I mean, expect that to happen as you're out sharing your faith. You will be surprised because God is at work. We're not the ones that do that. And and then there are also, we have to know that there are those who will believe. They will, just as we once have, perhaps, they, they they will choose to follow Christ and embrace him. And so can I just, can I just ask you this morning, like what, what is stopping you from being active and sharing your faith? What, what's, what's holding you back? I mean, if, 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 you're, if you're starting to cultivate this jealousy for God's glory that he might be worshiped, then, then what is crippling you? What is, it, what is the fear going on in your heart that you need to pray and ask God to, to help you get over? I wanna just give, to wrap up, a, a few simple encouragements, so simple, all right? The, the first is just believe. If you remember last week in John's sermon, Romans 12, it said that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices as we are not conformed to the world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? And, and John talked about how that we need to overcome the futility of our thinking. That's what we need to be transformed. And so this is, this is what happens with sharing our faith, right? We, we, we don't really, at the end of the day, in, in our actual practice, we are not believing what this says, Right? And we, we really, I mean, if we really believed that, that Jesus was worthy of our, of our witness and that the, the gospel was the power of God to save anybody, even the most skeptical of your friends, then surely we would be more active in sharing our faith. So we need to believe the truths of God and the promises of God and get about this. Number two, we need to pray. Pray, ask God to fill you with his spirit. Ask God to give you boldness, to get over those hurdles that, that, that stand in your way. Ask God to, to work, to, to open doors, to give you opportunities and then to give you strength to create opportunities that may not even be there. So we believe, we pray, and then we go. We have to, we have to move, we have to take a step, we have to get out of our comfort zone. We have to make the commitment to say, you know what? I'm going to share no matter how awkward it may be. Man, I'm going to honor God by obedience here. And I'm going to share my faith with someone who needs him. And then, and then finally, we do this together. All right? So, so when you are out there sharing your faith, one, I mean, we need to do that, but it's so much better if you have friends, people in your life, a community group. This is one reason we have community because we wanna be about the mission together to know that other people are praying, not only for you, but for that person that you know needs Christ. And you can go out together and, and share your faith together. It's so much better when we do it in community. And so, so these two men that we talked about earlier, John Leonard Dobear and David Nitchman, they answered the call of the gospel to take it 
to slaves in the 18th century. I mean, will, will we answer the call today? Will we answer the call to go across the street or maybe even around the world to take the good news of Jesus to people who need to know that he is worthy of their worship? This is our privilege to serve and to witness, and that is why we are here as a church, that all people might worship him. So let's be about his mission together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that we find such a great encouragement to be about your mission. And so, Father, we we ask that you would fill us with a desire, a passion to see you glorified and worshiped by all people and that uh, Lord, as you work that into our hearts, that then we would just begin to take steps of obedience. I know, I know Lord, that, that we have so many fears, we have so many reservations, but Lord, we also know that people need to hear of Christ. And so Lord, would you give us boldness and would you give us grace to follow you, to know that, that, that you can work through us as instruments in your hands to bring salvation that is found in Christ alone. We pray in his name, amen.